Hi, this is Michael Gebert. Every time I ask people to rate us at iTunes, I get one or two more ratings, which help us to be more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. But it ought to be more than that. If you're logged into iTunes, it's easy to leave us a rating and even a short review. So if you like this podcast, help others like it too. Take just a moment and leave us a rating and a review. Thanks. I'm coming across scans like, oh, you know, a print of, you know, cops with Buster Keaton. Oh, my gosh. Everybody's got cops. This will bring 20 bucks on eBay. I'll do that later. I'll throw it aside. And I'm going through cans. Then I come to a can that says, the battle of the century, real too. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Before he was the Phantom, before he was the Hunchback, Lon Chaney was a bit player, making dozens of little films at Universal. Collector and accompanist John Marsalis has put three of these titles out on a new disc from Undercrank Productions. We'll talk about that and other things that go with being a collector. Like, go oh, when you put on a reel you've acquired and realize that you're the first person to see a long-lost Laurel and Hardy short in 75 years. And remember to subscribe at what we like to think of as the Unholy Three, iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. No, no, I'm not trying to be he who gets slapped. It's just a little mockery, nothing unknown around here. But please, do it, so you never suffer the penalty of missing an episode. Dr. John C. Marsalis has PhDs in genetics and toxicology, and has been involved in just about any infectious disease drug research program out there. He's also a silent film fan and collector, and even a companist for screenings in the Bay Area. That's his music playing behind me right now. And he's the latest individual to put out a professionally produced DVD of rare silence held by the Library of Congress through Ben Modell's Undercrank Productions. Lon Chaney, Before the Thousand Faces, looks at the horror icon's early work as a character actor in three incomplete films directed by Joseph Grass in 1915 and 1916. Marsalis has long been a Chaney fan. In fact, that was his username when he was on the old Usenet group alt.movies.silent, Chaney fan. We'll get to how he found that famous Laurel and Hardy film eventually. But it all begins with Chaney and how a young John Marsalis discovered him. Well, I got into Lon Chaney at a pretty early age. I mean, I was when I was growing up, I was very much a, a horror, science fiction, fantasy movie buff. I mean, I saw King Kong at age four, and it kind of changed my life. And uh, so I subscribed to Famous Monsters of uh, Filmland magazine from about age 10 on, and they always had a feature called uh, every month called Lon Chaney Shall Not Die, and they'd have a picture of a Chaney film. And, you know, I mean, I made it to college having seen exactly two Lon Chaney films, Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame. And that was it. And I was like, well, wh why can't I see all these other films? I mean, at the time, I didn't know there was such a thing as lost films. And um, and so, you know, I just became very interested in Chaney. I was actually working on a book. At one point, um, uh, Citadel Press wasn't interested in it. They said it wasn't commercial enough. And they said, well, don't feel bad. We also turned down, you know, the films of Fred Astaire and the films of Burt Lancaster as not being commercial. Um, and so uh, I ended up creating a website, uh, which is lonchaney.org that, that I've run for many years now, uh, probably 20, 20 or so years. Uh, so, yeah, I've always been interested in Cheney. In particular, I've been interested in the early Cheneys. I mean, I like 
the MGM period, but the MGM period is around. I mean, you know, you can, you know, with the exception of the notorious films like, you know, London After Midnight, you know, Tower of Lies, The Big City and Thunder, you know, you can really see his entire MGM output. Um, many of them, the majority of them in beautiful prints off the camera negative. You know, the period that's fascinating to me is the over 100 films he made for Universal pre-1920. And a pitiful number of those survive. When I first got into this, I think the survival number was about two. And I think now it's running more like about 18 because films have been turning up. But so, you know, it was I guess it was the allure of the unknown. If it's, you know, like the Garbo films where you just go, you check them all off, you see them all and say, well, now I'm done. With Cheney, it's always the endless search of, you know, how am I going to find, you know, one more of these early Cheney films to take a look at? Well, yeah, so this set is uh, three films all made at Universal, 1915 to 1916, pretty close to the beginning of his career. Uh, let's talk about what was he really, you know, what, what was his position at Universal? Well, he was just a, a, a another contract player. He, uh, I mean, his the films, I think his earliest appearance is something like Unbilled is like uh, November 1912. Uh, you know, he starts getting build appearances in 1913. By 1914, you know, he's making 20 plus films a year, which means every other week he's making another film. Um, you know, he was just another actor. He was rising through the ranks. He was certainly not the leading man or the lead player in 1915, 1916. And the DVD set, you know, that's sort of in that period when he was becoming a you know, a, you know, a made a featured player, but not the star, you know, the star would be, a you know, a Cleo Madison or a Dorothy Phillips or, you know, for the, uh, you know, in many of his early, early universal films or, you know, Pauline Bush would be the lead and he would have a, a small, sometimes a middling level, you know, part. It's not till we get to about 1917 or 1918 that he's starting to get significant leading roles and it's not till about 1920 where he's really starting to get kind of star billing. So, uh, you know, it, 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 as with many careers, you know, you see, you know, a gradual, you know, buildup. You know, Clara Bow's early films, you know, she plays, you know, small parts in the film. And, you know, you just kind of watch her grow into stardom over a period of, uh, you know, half of a decade. You can see why he's a valuable supporting player very quickly in these films. Part of it is the makeup. I mean, the first the first sight we have of him on the set is as an old man with a full beard and all of that. But it's also just, I mean, he, he has a face made for silent films as much as anyone does. He's, you know, dour, can be kind of scary. Um, you know, the, the poignancy will come out later, I think. He plays usually someone who's anger, bitterness, or something is kind of the motivator of the plot. He's not a lead, but he's he's an important figure in the way the plots are constructed. Right. First one up is called A Mother's Atonement, and he's he's the father, and was it Cleo Madison? The, yeah, the, Cleo the, Madison. She's, she's his daughter, and she's also the wife that, uh, without giving, I'm trying to think how to phrase this without giving too many things away, but uh, early on we see that she seemed to be dallying with another man and he fired a shot and the plot went from there. Well, I mean, we, we know, again, without without giving, you know, spoilers, you know, not that it's, it's you know, the most gripping, you know, it's not like an Alfred Hitchcockian <laughs> plot that, oh my gosh, you can't give away the end. I mean, he is, you know, he's abandoned by his wife within about the first, you know, you know, 180 seconds of the movie, uh, you find out, uh, you know, some of it told in flashback and, you know, he's left with this daughter and, you know, a very stern father and the daughter escapes and goes to the city. And, you know, Cheney does not have a big part. He kind of disappears. In fact, it's, uh, you know, the film is incomplete. It's missing the last reel, but we have all the Cheney footage because he kind of disappears from the film, you know, fairly early on. We see him in flashback as a as a young man, as we we see him as what Cheney looked like in 1915. And um, we, you know, but much of the film, he's now the father of a, of a grown young woman. And, you know, he, you know, in heavy beard and, you know, many people don't realize that's Cheney. 
And I've had people who got the set said, oh, I didn't realize that was Cheney until I realized from the flashback, oh, my gosh, that's him with a with a very, very full beard, almost, you know, what you might call a Santa Claus beard, but not white, you know, completely covering his face. So, you know, you have no idea who this is. So, you know, it's not a big part. It's a it's a I would say, you know, you're right. He's one of the plot motivators. But the story is about the girl. And, you know, once she leaves and goes off to the city, then the story just goes off in a completely different direction. Right. Uh, now, the second film is uh, If My Country Should Call. In 1960, I guess it would be after America went into the war. It certainly seems like it must be just by the fact that it's basically propaganda for why we should, you know, every man should do his duty. Um, tell me what Cheney's role is in that. So again, Cheney is a secondary character. He plays what I would describe as a good guy, which isn't common even earlier in his career. Um, is the um, you know he plays a sort of a, an, an ethical you know doctor uh, who's a friend of this family, and then the plot resol- revolves around a woman who is terrified of losing her loved ones, either her husband or now as an older woman her son. Um, to war, and so she's a, she's very much a pacifist. She's you know she's opposed to fighting, and then of course the kind of the uh, the tension of the film is you know the men are all you know yeah yeah I you know I need to serve my country, I need to be patriotic, and she's you know no no I can't let you go away. I mean that is basically the what uh, you know underscores the film, and the uh, again I, I don't want to give much away, but uh, but Cheney is is a doctor who is a family friend who kind of, uh, you know, appears and goes away and reappears. He's a recurring character over the course of the film who, who let's say, you know, plays an important role and is, uh, you know, and, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to give away plot, not that, again, that it's that, that, it's that gripping, but, but, you know, if you see the film, you see, you know, it's, it's, you know some of the great reveals of one of the great under uh, plots of the film are um, uh, you know come out from Cheney with the what I call aha moments you know aha you know I just realized that you know this is you know somebody did something that was incorrect so uh, you know again it's uh, you know it's a minor role uh, and and that of the of the three films on the DVD that's the one that was the the biggest mess because it was missing two of five reels so so it kind of comes and goes and you have to have bridging titles and it. Uh, you know, it's the 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 most confusing one and probably the most ridiculous of the films. Although I, I like it in a perverse kind of way, uh, it's 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 goofy for reasons that you realize if you watch all the way to the end. You know, sort of what happens. Well, and also it's you know both of them are very typical for films of the teens, as, as you say. I mean, they just get right down to it. They set up their plot in the first minute or two, and it, and it just goes. And I I find that that directness of the of teens films kind of satisfying compared with later Hollywood films that would you know take a long time getting the plot going. Um, the third one is probably what he did the most of at Universal in this early period, which is a western uh, called The Place Beyond the Wind. Yeah, so so Place Beyond the Winds, and that's the one. I mean, I, I probably like that one the best of the of the three films. It's quite an interesting picture. Again, he plays the uh, you know the you know often you know, films that era you know the less politically correct era. He plays a quote half breed. They never really explain his parentage, but he is uh, you know he is a, a part Native American who you know is in love with the heroine. And who has other interests, and he alternates from kind of I won't say bad guy, but more sinister character to very sympathetic character over the course of the film. Uh, again, not in any kind of makeup at all. I mean, that's that's the one of the three films where he's just, it's just him. I mean, there's 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 essentially no makeup. I mean, other than he's done a few odd things with his hair. But um, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, again, it's a traditional melodrama. And that one's the most complete. It's missing real one. But but real one's really easy to explain away in one title. And then the film is pretty much complete thereafter. And so that one plays the most like feels like a like a full film and that you're not having to explain a lot away. Well, yeah. I mean, let's talk about where these came from. I mean, two of them are films from the Dawson City 
find. Where where did the third one come from originally? So right. So so uh, Place Beyond the Winds and If My Country Should Call were in the Dawson City collection. It was found under the permafrost in 1978. As you said, you you've covered it, and people can see Frozen in Time and and learn about that there. But but very briefly, you know, they, in 1978, a bulldozer was excavating and you know a plot of ground and found hundreds of reels of film that had been buried under the permafrost for you know, half a century and were remarkably well preserved. And those went to Library of Congress. Um, the and and those those went to Library of Congress shortly thereafter. I actually looked at those films and I looked it up in 1985 and I've been interested in doing something with them ever since 85. So it's literally taken me three decades to bring this project to fruition. Um, and um, and the third film, A Mother's Atonement, came earlier. There was a collection, a private collector. The last name was, I believe, Nichols. Nichols or Nicholson? I think Nichols. Um, uh, and this was a collection of nitrate purchased by the Library of Congress. And I've gotten varying reports. It was either 1,500 films or 1,500 reels of nitrate. And that was in there. And um, and so that, you know, that had also been there a long time. I saw that film with the Library of Congress in 1978. So I had an interest in doing something with these films. And I was never sure exactly what through something called the uh, Library of Congress silent movie project, where they're trying to kind of repatriate films from private collections. Um, I've been working a lot with the Library of Congress over the last couple of years. And this was a sort of as a favor to me, and because they have an arrangement with Ben Modell's Undercrank Productions, all the pieces came together, and they said, "Well, you know, we'll give, we can give you, uh, you know, good, you know, brand new 2K, you know, scans off of the preservation negatives on this." And so they provided me with, um, with, with, you know, new scans that, as you can see from the DVD, really look good for films that are, you know, a hundred years old. And but, you know, they have there's water damage in the Dawson City films. In fact, uh, one of the things people people don't realize is, gosh, you know, these have so little decomposition for having been buried under the ground for half a century. Well, the prints were almost in pristine condition when they came out of the ground. Nobody had experience in dealing with frozen film buried under dirt. And in the thawing process, some of the edges of the film had water damage. So where you see like nitrate decomp on the edges, that happened in 1978 when they took the film out of the ground. Um, and, you know, they would know how to do it differently now. But um, but anyway, um, but they were, all three films were a little bit of a mess. Again, the Mother's Atonement is missing real three of three uh, Place Beyond the Winds was missing reel one of five, and If My Country Calls, I believe it's reels one and four. So what I did was, uh, you know, so I got these scans, did my best to clean them up, and I mean, there's, there's, you know, freeze frames, there's damage sections that you couldn't do much with, and I mean, I didn't have either the time or the wherewithal to go through frame by frame and clean up dust and scratches. So, or even, you know, try a lot of fancy image stabilization. So the films, it, it, what you see is what you get. But what I did do, in addition to kind of cleaning it up and adjusting the contrast and doing the best I could on that, I created uh, explanatory titles. And I went back to things like uh, Universal Weekly, uh, um, you know, Moving Picture World, and I got uh, synopses and descriptions, in some cases, copyright records from the time that had detailed, uh, you know, details of the whole film. And I could reconstruct the missing footage. And that's why there's bridging titles. And uh, that's where I began working with Ben Modell, who was terrific in this and very supportive. And he was very interested in the project right from the start um, of putting them out as undercrank, which really kind of fit the model of the kind of things that he was trying to release, you know, the underserved silent film market, which is to say not big market. And, um, and so, you know, we, he helped found, he found a great font that matched the universal font. And then we do things like I put titles into Photoshop and blur them to the same level of blurring that the original titles had. So, so put a fair amount of effort into, you know, reconstructing it as best as I could to make it flow, you know, from beginning to end as a complete story, even being kind of choppy and and, you know, all the missing some footage. 
Um, it, I was pretty pleased with how they came out, but time I was done kind of rebuilding them from scratch. Well, and there's one other thing that you did on these films, which is you provided the scores. Right. Uh, because you're you're a multi-talented guy. Uh, I know you play in public out in the Bay Area as well. Yeah, so tell me about that. Well, so the, the scores, I mean, I've, as you said, I've, I've been scoring silent films for since 1976, so I'm over the 40-year mark here. But since about, uh, oh, the early 2000s, I think it was around 2002 or three. Um, I bought myself a very high-end digital keyboard, and uh, some people call it a synthesizer. It's not a synthesizer, which is something that f- makes fake sounds with oscillators. This is a keyboard that licensed the Boston Symphony. So a simplistic way to describe it is when I set it to clarinet and I play middle C, what I'm playing, what I'm hearing is a recording of the first clarinetist of the Boston Symphony playing a middle C. Um, and it's obviously a little more complicated than that, but that in, in essence is what it is. And so I can build scores, um, what that sound like full orchestral scores. And, you know, most of the time, these are, those were one take recordings. Uh, you know, if you, in fact, I think, I believe if my country should call as no overdub at all, that was done as, you know, uh, one score, one take me doing it all on the keyboard. Uh, you know, now for, um, in particular for Place Beyond the Wind, I could overdub some solos. So there's a few, few places where I would say, well, you know, the, the, you can see there's a couple key scenes where, where uh, Jack Mulhall plays the violin. And so I, you know, I thought as I'm planning out the score, I said, okay, I'm just going to play some, on the first pass, play some kind of basic, you know, rhythm music, and then I'll overlay a violin. And then I would go back and I would, you know, dub over a second track with violin and but they weren't real sophisticated i mean they, these were i don't think there's any place where there's more than three tracks of sound and the vast majority of of all three films is one track and so i just i do it all on the computer and i just lay the track down synced up with the print and then uh, you know in the end delivered video masters to ben who then took them to the production company and you know, he he's Ben's the one that packaged them and put the menus on and and did all that. Um, I just kind of delivered final uh, ProRes files that I'd edited, and you know, this is all done at home. It's Sony Vegas, you know, yeah. my keyboard plugged in. So uh, you know, it's this is the kind of thing. You know, it, this project would not have been possible a decade ago because a decade ago it would have cost a fortune to get the LOC scan. I would have had to work with a production company, you know, and a, and a professional editor that, you know, paying 150 bucks an hour to, you know, to do all that. But, you know, if to do the score, I would have needed studio time at, a, at about 125 an hour and, you know, including an engineer. In other words, it, it would have cost thousands of dollars to, you know, to make, you know, to do this video on something that, you know, if we sell a thousand copies of this, I'm going to be tickled to death. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, you know, in other words, will, you know, I would have never made the money back. Whereas this literally the only costs of the entire project was the postage it took to mail the flash drives containing the films to Ben in New York. So I have about $3 and 50 cents. I don't want to I have a lot of sweat equity in it. I mean, right. I've, I've many hours to do all the video editing and the title reconstruction and the research and um, uh, and then doing the scores, um, you know, but, you know, but, it, you know, it was a labor of love. Obviously, I didn't do it for the big three figure payouts I'm going to be getting in royalties, um, you know, three figure if I'm lucky. Um and so, in other words, that it makes it possible, and that's the beauty of a thing like like Undercrank. You can take these kind of lesser things that that even a Kino or Flickr Alley or Image Entertainment are going to say, yeah, nah, we just can't make money with that. And you can put them out and and you know get them out to the world, and that sort of was my goal. Well, and one of the things that's distinctive about it too is, you know, incomplete films are very hard thing to release commercially because because they're incomplete because they're incomplete <laughs> they have that stigma exactly you know this is this is really showing people a much better much truer side of what's going on in the archives than something that like you said is off camera negative and is relatively 
perfect in you know in its presentation today. Right, exactly. And I've said, well, if this does well, I mean, I have other projects in mind that I could do, but does well is a relative term. I mean, if I, uh, this was one of the ones I think I was lucky that I really truly could do it for free, but there are other Cheney things out there and other archives that, that even if I could quote, get it for free, I would probably still be paying for digital scans. And, you know, you'd have a couple thousand bucks up front. Again, I, I don't know that that makes it feasible any longer. And I'm, I'm, I don't need to make money in this, but I don't really want to lose money either. Um, at least lose a lot of money. And so, you know, we'll see how this one does. Uh, I, again, I think I'd be delighted if it sold a thousand copies. I don't know if it'll get there uh, at some point, but, you know, I mean, if it, if it does okay, then there, that may say, gee, there really is a market for some of this kind of more obscure offbeat material. And I like Cheney a lot, but I mean, there are other, there are other films out there that I think are orphan films that deserve to deserve to get screened. And for various reasons, they just don't, you know, they, they, you know, they don't attract the attention. You know, anybody can put out a restored Metropolis or yet another version of the Phantom of the Opera and, and it'll sell. But um, to name the two best selling silent movie DVDs of all time, Phantom and Metropolis. But, um, you know, there's not a whole lot others that are going to generate big sales. You mentioned in passing there the silent film project, um, which I didn't, I mean, I kind of, I guess I kind of knew this was going on, but I didn't really know it was as formal a thing as you're talking about. And I found the page, I'll link this on Nitrateville, uh, that kind of gives an overview of it. And it's really interesting in that, you know, there's, there's kind of an idea that collectors have been a bit at loggerheads with big organizations, whether it's studios or archives or whatever. And this is really a project to go out there and collaborate with collectors on making sure that things are saved and they don't get, you know, lost at some future date because only one person has them. So yeah, talk about that and how it came about. Well, so this is a project that began, I think we can trace this to the publication of David Pierce's book, um, I don't remember the exact title, but Survival of American Silent Film, or something along those lines, which you can you can find online, uh, that Library of Congress published. And what David did is he went out and he surveyed uh, not just archives, but you know private collections, and I, I was one of the people that contributed to this, other people did as well. Um, and to make a long story short, what was interesting about that, and that's the book that came out with the figure we've now heard that, you know, approximately 25% of silent features survive in some form or another. And, but a significant number of those survive in 16 millimeter only in the hands of private collectors. And there is an impressively long list of films and the library of Congress has even put out a want list of, um, of, you know, we're looking for these. These are titles that we know are out there in 16 somewhere because we know about screenings or they were in the Kodoscope catalog or the Universal Show at Home catalog. And so we would, um, you know, we'd like to borrow these prints. So Library of Congress got some funding to try to, you know, what I might call repatriate from private collections films and the way the program works is you loan them the film there's no money to change hands you loan them the film they they professionally clean it they professionally do a, a digital scan they give you back your film in fact if you ask for it they'll give it back to you on new reels and new cans and they will um uh and but they'll also give you a, a you know a good high def video scan of it that you can do with as you will but the beauty of this is the Library of Congress then accumulates a, you know, a large library of, you know, high def digital scans of 16 millimeter films that can then be used for other preservation projects. You know, if someone finds a, a nitrate of a film that's missing a couple reels, they say, oh, you know, we have high def scans in 16 millimeters. They can work with other archives. So um, I was the original guinea pig. For this program, uh, it began uh, about uh, 1914. I'm sorry, 2014-ish. Uh, really took off by about 2015. 
and um, and uh, this happened at a time that I had another collection, which we'll probably get to talking about, the Gordon Burkow collection passing through my hands, that had 14 features in it that were uh, technically lost features and that no FIAF archive held them. So I began passing film through the library and they began um, and they began accumulating. And I think they ended up scanning something like 85 to 90 films, both features and shorts from me. But then I you know, made some presentations. I spoke mostly lost one year. I gave a presentation about, you know, finding lost films in 16 millimeter collections. And, uh, you know, I've kind of been a spokesperson when other collectors have been approached, they've sometimes contacted me and said, oh, these people have approached me. Can I safely loan them my films? And I think my response was usually, you know, I, I would trust them with my firstborn child. So, so yes, you can you can totally trust them. And so I don't know what the current number is, but I think last summer they were saying they had over 300 films that now passed through um, the uh, this collection where they're digitizing this large collection of silent films, all from 16 millimeter. And it's they're they're picking things that where there is no known print in any FIAF archive. I saw that East Side West Side was one of the titles that came from you originally. Um, what else did you have that you contributed to it? Oh, you're you you caught me off guard with that question. Uh, you <laughs> know, I mean, there was there were certainly a lot of interesting codoscopes and show at homes. Um, uh, the, uh, again, you know, to be fair, you know, this wasn't, you know, I didn't have London after midnight or the 40 real version of greed. These were Jack Hoxie Westerns, right? These were, um, uh, the, a, a French version of the passion play from 1914, um, that no one seemed to have. And at first we weren't even sure what it was. Then eventually we figured out what it was. Um, there were some very rare shorts, um, uh, that, uh, you know, that, you know, pass through all in beautiful old original prints. Um, you know, I mean, East Side, West Side is just one example. You know, it's a 1923 Irving Cummings directed production. Not a big film, but, you know, a, a minor little melodrama from the period. No known archival copy. And other people have said, well, you know, Grapevine sells it. Well, you know, yeah, Grapevine sells it on DVD, you know, off of Duke print, but you know, uh, you know, we've now got a beautiful tinted original print that's now been beautifully scanned and that Library of Congress has. And that is available online. And if you if you search, you know, Library of Congress Silent Film Project, you'll you'll very quickly find it. And and that was one they also had me score. And, you know, just as an example of the, the very good quality that they get on uh, on these films. So there I think as I think there were 14 lost um uh, features oh another one as uh it was a uh, paradise uh, is it paradise of sunshine alley? sunshine of paradise alley sunshine of paradise alley thank you an early max davidson film and uh, again no known archival holdings the film's been around but it had a beautiful um original tinted print there have been a few others of what i would call um common films uh the and um, but in beautiful prints, um, I have a really stunning uh, original show at home print of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. The only print anyone has ever in come across that has the original titles, because the, the prints we've seen, they the titles were damaged. Codoscope replaced them with made up titles. This has a rid the original 1923 titles on it. Uh, a really beautiful, exceptionally beautiful print. So, you know, that was something else that I wanted to get scanned and out there. Uh, you know, so that, that people would, uh, you know, that somebody would have it. Now, yeah, one title I noticed on there, speaking of things that, that are out there, uh, was the 29 Four Feathers, the Cooper and Shodzak version of that, uh, which I remember was in the Films, Inc. catalog. I'm sure at some point I tried to order the uh, the 39 and got the 29, since Films, Inc. always sent you the wrong one, if you, whatever you picked. Exactly. Uh, so what was the story on that? So that was a really interesting one because so, uh, you know, when we began doing this, uh, I was working with Library of Congress and actually Amy Jo Stanfill, I'll give a big shout out to because she's the one who's leading this program. I sent her my list of my complete inventory of films 
And and I suggested things that I thought she would want to copy because I thought that they were either rare or they were unusual prints. The, she said, oh, I'd like the four feathers. And I said, oh, no, no, you don't need the four feathers. I mean, this is an, MC, an original MCA TV print. There's lots of prints around on this. I'm, you know, you got the Paramount collection. I'm sure you have the 35 millimeter camera negatives on this. And she said, nope, we have nothing. And there is, I'm showing no archival holdings anywhere for this title. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm sure that you're mistaken. <laughs> well, no, there apparently are no archival holdings. And I thought, what an odd thing to be missing now that that gets complicated because now that's you know that's the 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 Shudsack Cooper films and I think like I'm thinking maybe it's Brigham Young University has them so maybe they they're there but they're not officially in an archive so they wanted to borrow my 16 and scan it and I said okay and so, so that was one of the ones that really kind of surprised me there, there were a few other things um, there was one I won't I won't tell you what the title is because it's a sensitive title, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'll, I'll say I'll, a, a Lon Chaney film is still copyrighted Lon Chaney film from a major studio, except that the major studio the had their one projection print has been destroyed, and they can't show it anymore, and there's apparently a problem with printing the negative. And so I know there was a festival that was going to run it. And I said, if you can clear it with this major studio, I'll loan you my print. And so they cleared it and I provided my print. So they contacted me about that one and said, well, you know, it's hard to believe we don't have this pretty significant film that, say, has run on Turner Classic Movies. And I said the story. I said, well, I haven't heard what happened, but I think the one projection print on the planet's been destroyed. So they ended up scanning that as well. And, and that was that was a real surprise because you just think, oh, you know, everybody's got that. Well, no, everybody doesn't. Yeah. Well, it's too bad the title is unknown. But anyway, um... and it's not un, it's not <laughs> it's not an unknown title. It's uh, it's but but you're 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 not too far off in years. All right. Well, now you mentioned offhand uh, the Gordon Burkow collection, which had, which did have one big, long sought after prize in it. Um, but tell me about that. Tell me who Gordon Burkow was and how you came into possession of all these films. Okay. Well, let me let me back up a little earlier than that because I will lead up to the the film that that I know you're going to ask about. Um, the, the, let's, let's back up to Robert Youngson and, you know, Robert Youngson was a producer and director at Warner brothers going back, I think into the 1940s. And he made a lot of well-known, what I would call documentary shorts. Um, you know, this mechanical age, I believe is either was nominated for or maybe won an Oscar for best short. And it, when he got in the 1950s, he began to make a number of, uh, what I some people call documentaries, I call compilation films, things like Days of Thrills and Laughter, Golden Age of Comedy, Further Perils of Laurel and Hardy. And what he did, these were compilation films kind of coming with the best of the scenes of the silent era, which, you know, you think from time wise now, this is like 30 to 40 year old films. Um, it'd be, you know, the frightening thing is if we saw something today with compilations of the 1970s, right. that, that's the time frame. And, and so the, what he did is he went out and he signed licensing deals with the studios and they weren't doing anything with old silent films. So they were happy to provide, provide material. And if you were doing this today, you know, you would contact say Warner brothers classics and say, you know, I need, uh, you know, I want to use a clip of, you know, such and such film, and they would send you a time-coded DVD, and then when you studied it and figured out what you needed, you would write them back and say, okay, I need a 35-millimeter fine grain of, you know, of this title from, you know, 17 minutes, 23 seconds to 21 minutes, 14 seconds, and then you would save the money by just doing that little kind of snippet of film in the very high quality you need for your final theatrical release. Except they didn't have digital time code in the 1950s, but they did have 16 millimeters. So when Youngson would order up films from studios, he would say things like, you know, I would like, um, uh, you know, a print of um, Double Whoopi, for example, of Laurel and Hardy. And they would go to the camera negative and strike a 16 millimeter print of Double Whoopi. 
And he would use that and then he would write them back and he'd say, you know, I want from 14 and a half minutes to 18 and a half minutes of this. And they'd strike him like a 35 millimeter fine grain or maybe they'd go, I, I don't know what he worked in, if he worked in, you know, fine grains or release prints or they struck him negative, whatever. But they would give him just that footage. So that's that's the Youngson collection. And so he acquired, besides putting out all these compilation films, he acquired lots of interesting 16 millimeter titles in his collection. Well, flash forward to about 1990, and Youngson passed away in the 70s. And I don't know if it was, it was widow or his kids, but his estate, somebody was selling his collection, and his collection was sold to three kind of legendary New York area collectors, <clears throat> William K. Everson, uh, Herb Graff, and Gordon Burkow. And Gordon was, a, of course, William K. Everson, everybody knows Bill Everson, or famous film scholar, probably one of the most important people in, you know, in the history of silent film history and, and writing and exhibition. Herb Graff, not as well known, but Herb was a major collector, especially of musical shorts, sound films. And, um, and so the three of them went in together and they bought the Youngson collection and they divided it up. And Bill only wanted three films. Uh, one of them was Past the Gravy. I've tried to learn what the other two were, but neither Michael Graff, the son of Herb Graff, nor Karen Everson, Bill's uh, wife, uh, now widow, uh, said they said, well, yeah, I remember the transaction, but I can't tell you what the films were. And Gordon got most of the silent material in 1990. So flash forward again, about 2003, Gordon passes away. And his collection kind of bounced around in limbo for a decade for a variety of reasons I won't go into, legal reasons, estate reasons. Uh, you know, there was talk of David Packard acquiring the collection, and that deal never came to fruition. And by about 19, 2014, the family was getting tired of this. And there were two daughters that, um, that they said, you know, we just we're paying for storage on this. Hurricane Sandy had just come through and nearly flooded the storage vault. We, we need to get rid of this. And through a couple mutual friends, they were referred to me. And again, to make a long story short, I, you know, I met with them. We cut a deal and I said, I'll take care of this collection. I was basically going to liquidate the collection for them. And so I was essentially selling the collection for him, but of course I could take anything I wanted. And uh, if anyone goes to my Facebook page, you'll see a picture of what my downstairs theater looked like the day that the um, four tons of film arrived. It was 2,323 films, 2,323, nice e even number. And um, they, um, and so I began sorting through these and I'd say, oh, you know, the print of Psycho and Maltese Falcon, The Birth of a Nation, The General. I, I can sell these really quickly uh, just to make room. And so I'm going through and, you know, I spent a year going through this material. And there's things I'd say, ooh, you know, this this show at home print of Hunchback of Notre Dame. I want that for myself. You know, oh, this print of... Uh, you know, the general I'm going to sell. And then there was the stuff that I called the true junk, things that just, you know, were very common, I didn't want, didn't need, and I wouldn't get much money for. And I would kind of throw those in a pile because I don't, you know, I don't have time to look at these now. And so as I'm sorting through, you know, as I'm starting to make headway, we get into like the early part of 2015. And I'm coming across cans. I go, oh, you know, a print of, you know, cops with Buster Keaton. Oh, my gosh. Everybody's got cops. This will bring 20 bucks on eBay. I'll do that later. I'll throw it aside. And I'm going through cans. And I come to a can that says, the battle of the century, real too. And I said, oh, the battle of the century. This is the pie fight sequence. You know, and, you know, it's well known. So Laurel and Hardy short that the first half of the film is a prize fight. The second half is the most famous pie fight ever filmed and in robert in one of robert youngson's films i believe golden age of comedy there's about a two and a half to three minute clip of that pie fight and that is all that survives of the second half of the film and so i said well this is just junk it's the pie fight and i threw that in the junk pile and you know as i eventually made way i got went through got through all the features and, I, and i'm getting down to a smaller and smaller pile i said okay let's get rid of some of this junk and I would put everything on the, I screened everything. I put it on the projector, take a couple digital snapshots so I could sell it. I had lists for collectors and the, the dregs ended up on eBay. And I pull this can of the Battle of Century and I pop open the can and I look at it and I go, huh, 
that's a full 400-foot reel. I mean, that, that's a, the equivalent of a full 35-millimeter reel of film. This should be two and a half minutes long. And, and I thought, well, you know, Gordon sometimes spliced other things on a reel. If it was a short reel, I said, oh, I bet this is the part of reel one that survives and the pie fight. And I hold it up to the light, but there's no splices. I said, well, okay, let's just look at this thing and figure out what it is. So I put it on the screen. The first title comes up, uh, you know, uh, uh, The Battle of the Century, start reel two. And it begins. And I'm watching this. And it had been quite a few years, probably 10 years since I'd seen the pie fight footage. And I'm watching and I'm going, what am I looking at? Because it's Stan and Ollie and they're walking down the street and there's a gag with a banana peel and there's a gag with a banana seller. And it's Charlie Hall is 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 there in a, in a pie store. And, I, and I'm, I'm watching this thing. I don't remember any of this. And I, and I'm three, four minutes in, and I'm going, when is the pie fight going to start? And then the pie fight begins slowly, not like the Youngson film where it just bang, it's, it's, it's going. It's you see the buildup and how we get to the pie fight. And it runs through this whole thing, long, long sequence, all the way to the final of the end MGM. And I look back at the projector, and I've just run a complete 10-minute, 400-foot reel. And I said, holy cow, this is all a reel, too, except I didn't say cow. I said something else. <laughs> and and I was kind of stunned by this. And then I thought, well, I mean, G Gordon obviously knew he had this, and Gordon alone films other collectors. You know, wonder why people think this is so rare. And so I just... I, I said, well, I'll take this one, obviously, because all I have is the pie fight. And I thought to myself, I'll bet I have the only 16 millimeter print of this in existence. And I went about my merry way. Well, about a month later, I bumped into an individual I won't name at an archive I won't name that was doing restorations of all the Laurel and Hardys. And I mentioned in passing, I said, hey, you know, just thought I'd let you know that I have all of real two of the Battle of the Century. And you would think I would get it. Oh, my God. Oh, that's incredible. Can we use it? And what I got was, oh, that's nice. Walked away. So I thought, OK, they've got camera negative on this. This is nothing. And, you know, we get to June. I'm at the Mostly Lost Film Festival at Library of Congress. And I'm giving a presentation on, you know, in general on lost films found in private collections. And just as an, and I'm talking about the Robert Youngson and all these Youngson films that came into the Burkow collection and, and a sort of, oh, by the way, and I had a PowerPoint slide, I remember that, you know, it started with, I said, you know, you all know the pie, the story of the pie fight from, uh, you know, from the Battle of the Century. And I have a picture of, you know, like Nita Garvin or someone getting hit in the face with, with a pie down the corner i said but in this collection was all of real too and i hit the button on the powerpoint and all these stills from the first part and there was this audible gasp in the theater i mean and this is a theater filled with archivists and you know and, and people like serge bromberg and i mean just and there was this oh! and i kind of stopped for a second and i thought why did the gasp i mean surely the archivists know that there's like original camera negative on this. And I got mobbed after the film. And everyone said, no, this is it. This is all that survives. So, so to make a lot. So I, I was I mean, I guess I was I was you could argue which adjective is better, naive or stupid. But but I was kind of stunned by that. Um, and um and and by the way, since then, somebody at the at the original archive contacted me and said, you didn't really offer this to us, did you? And he said, <laughs> no, thanks. I said, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I said, oh, for God's sakes. You know, again, it was one of the things where the title just went over somebody's head. And um, so anyway, um, so I to make a long story short, I, you know, I, I'm very friendly with Serge Bromberg and, and he was very enthusiastic. And I said, you know, let's let's get this out there. And so, you know, Surge has, as I'm sure you've seen, it's been playing around the country now. Um, I have provided it to uh, two other archives. Uh, and again, Library of Congress scan. And I said, you know, you really ought to scan this. I mean, this is, I want this to be around 
you know, I don't want, you know, it to get restricted because just one place has it. So LOC has scanned it. I've provided it now to another uh, restoration that's starting to make its way around. So, so that's how it came to be all from, you know, the, from again, a collection of a private collector. And I don't believe Gordon ever knew what he had. I think he probably did what I did. He said, oh, another copy of Battle of the Century and he threw it on the shelf and probably never looked at it. Um, so, so yeah, so sometimes you can indeed find the most amazing things in, you know, hiding right in plain sight. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask if, how did he not know that he had one of the, you know, one of the things that people are searching for the most. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, a, you know, I think the, the writer for Slate said it was as if Moby Dick's, you know, swam onto shore with the Holy Grail in his mouth. You know, I mean, it, it was, you know, and Le- Leonard Malton was, you know, apoplectic on this. He's, you know, the, the, just an astonishing, you know, once in a lifetime find. And, you know, and I, I always, you know, I introduced this when we showed it at Cinecon a year ago. And I said, you know, I said, I'm a Lon Chaney collector where, you know, the, you know, 18 of the 110 Universal Silence survived. So excuse me if I'm not empathetic to you Laurel and Hardy collectors where there are three lost films and one of them we just found and, the, and another one there's a fragments of. There's one lost, completely lost Laurel and Hardy film. I said, I don't feel a lot of sympathy for you guys. <laughs> and, uh, so, it, uh, you know, I mean, it's exciting. And again, this is, you know, there are collectors who would say, ooh, this is so cool. I have this and you don't. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, to me, the enjoyment is getting people to see it. I mean, I, I, as with everyone, I probably, you know, at some level, I'm a narcissist and was delighted that, the New York Times covered it and, you know, did a big article about it and that it's played around the festivals. And I get a lot of thank yous, congratulations. But I'm just I'm just thrilled to have people see it. And, you know, the the punchline of all this, you know, you know, when Kevin Brownlow assembled the 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 lost, the silent Sherlock Holmes with John Barrymore, his comment was he said, as I began putting it together, I realized what a lousy movie it was. <laughs> but the Battle of the Century is a little masterpiece. I mean, if, for those who haven't seen it, I mean, it it really works it really plays well it brings the house down every time not just because people haven't seen it but because it is supremely funny and clever i mean it really is one of the best of the silent Lauren hardy's and that's saying a lot and so that that's what's so delightful is that not only has it been recovered and that people are seeing it but it's really really good Thanks to my guest, John Marsalis, for talking with me and for letting me use his music from Lon Chaney before The Thousand Faces. I'll have links for that DVD, as well as some clips for things we've talked about, in the show post at nitrateville.com. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure not to miss a single episode. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And hey, why not join us to chat about old movies at nitrateville.com. Thanks.